Okay, I guess we'll go ahead and get started here. There's a few more will probably come wandering in, but let's have a word of prayer. Lord, we do thank you now just for the fact that we are yours and that nothing can ever separate us from your love. Lord, we thank you for the new life that we have hidden for us in Christ, waiting to be discovered, waiting to be appropriated, and waiting to be one day revealed when he is revealed in all of his glory. Lord, we thank you for the hope that that gives us as we continue our life here on earth. And Lord, I do uh, pray um, just for this time together. Lord, as we continue to deal with the issue of self, Lord, I just pray that we would all come to understand how important it is for your spirit to reveal to us what the self-life is like so that we move more and more towards the Lord Jesus Christ. So, Lord, we commit this time now to you. First, in the precious name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. And give me just a second. Something's weird with my hearing aid, so. Here. Got in the wrong program, and it sounded really weird in my... Okay, we're in chapter 10, a chapter on self. Uh, we got about halfway through it. It's been a couple of weeks, so I will review just a little bit before we get into the new material. But, of course, we saw that one of the most important factors of Christian growth is the Holy Spirit's revelation of the self-life to the believer. And this is something that all too often I think we, uh, Christians fail to see. They fail to see that the revelation of self is an important part of Christian growth. You know, when they're struggling, when they're failing, when they're uh, seeing things about themselves that they don't like, they tend to think they aren't growing, and yet that, that is part of growth. We've got to see what the old Adamic life is like. We will never really come to depend uh, completely on Christ to be our source until we've come to see the utter hopelessness and helplessness of the self-life. And so a big part of Christian growth especially early on, is God revealing to us what our self-life is like. Now, of course, he defined self. Self is the fleshly, carnal life of nature. The life of the first Adam. Dead in trespasses and sin. The self-life is what we inherited from our uh, forefather, Adam. It is that nature that, you know, is bent towards a sin. And, uh, you know, Paul talks about the fact that in the flesh, which I think is the self-life, in the flesh dwells no good thing. And a big part of Christian growth is us coming to see that. 
you know, um, he, he go, went on to say, you know, for one to get beyond just knowing about the Lord Jesus and to enter into a consistent and growing personal knowledge of and fellowship with him, one must first come to know oneself. And he says, first the believer learns, not I, but then Christ. But the learning the not I part is a hard part of Christian growth. It is a painful part of Christian growth. You know, we, we came to salvation really uh, recognizing that we lacked the capacity to get into heaven on our own merit. And so we embraced Christ as our Savior. But few of us understood at that point just how truly hopeless and helpless the self-life is. We thought, yeah, we are not righteousness, righteous enough to get into heaven. But, you know, with a little bit of help from God, we can live the Christian life. And God has got to show us that that is not true. That we don't need his help in living the Christian life. We need his life to live the Christian life. You know, a lot of Christians speak a lot about Satan and, you know, what Satan's doing and how Satan's causing this and Satan's causing that and he's uh, leading us to do this or leading us to do that. And I don't want to discount the fact that Satan is God's adversary and he is working against God. But all too often Christians want to blame Satan for what is really simply self. There's this idea that if Satan wasn't causing us to do all these things, all would be well. That it's Satan's fault. Some of you older ones remember the comedian Flip Wilson whose signature line was, the devil made me do it. The devil made me do it, you know. If it weren't for the devil, I wouldn't have done this. The truth of the matter is that a lot of times all Satan does, if anything, is play upon our flesh. And what our fleshly nature is not only capable of, but um, kind of predisposed to. And the world and Satan, they know what the flesh wants and they tend to feed the flesh. But we've got to come to see that at this stage of the game... Certainly Satan was, you know, very much involved in tempting Adam and Eve. But if we took Satan out of the picture today, you and I would still have the capacity to sin. 
And our flesh could still lead us down that path. Not until we're in the presence of the Lord and he finally takes that old nature out of us will we be beyond that capacity. So, we have to learn, not I. And that's been a hard journey for me. To learn what I am incapable of on the one hand and what I am capable of on the other. Like Paul. You know, the good I want to do, I'm unable to do. And the evil I don't want to do, that, you know, I continually do. And if I don't do it, I want to do it. (laughs) If I don't do it outwardly, it's in my heart and in my mind. So I have to learn, not I. So that I'm ready to learn the but Christ part of the equation. Now he said the healthy new birth based on the deep conviction of sin and repentance towards God starts out clear and strong with love and devotion to the Savior. But, he said, before long there comes this sickening realization of an element within that pulls one back to self-centeredness, to the world, to the rule of law, to sin. And I would suspect that every one of us in this room have struggled with that. If not, you will. You know, you start out and everything's great. Man, I'm saved. God has forgiven my sins. I'm going to heaven. And initially it's, wow, I love God so much and I appreciate so much what he did. I'm going to get out there and I'm going to do this and this and this for him. But over time, we find that the old man, he may have been held to the cross, but he still influences us. He still, from the cross, is calling us to follow his ways. Now, you know, we also saw no believer will uh, truly come to know the Lord Jesus as his life until he knows by experience the deadly self-life deep within for what it is. Before you're ever going to truly embrace Christ as your life, you've got to come to know what you're like apart from him. And you've got to come to the place where you're willing to give up on what you are apart from him. To leave it on the cross and say, Lord, I acknowledge that what I am apart from you need, deserve nothing more than to be nailed to a cross. It's irreparable. It's not something you want. You want me to embrace your life. To take it as mine. To live in union with Christ. You know, in John 15, there in the vine and branches discourse, Christ says what? If you abide in me, 
And I abide in you. You will bear much fruit. He also talks about the effectiveness of our prayer. But it's not, Lord, you know, if you abide in the flesh and you're doing it for me, then you're going to have fruit. No. It's that living in union with him. You're living in him, he's living in you. That's the Christian life. That's what the New Testament describes for us. But until we come to give up on our old Adamic life, we're going to keep trying to fix it. We're going to keep trying to make it something acceptable to God. I remember when we were going through a bit of this with our students in, in one of our studies in our home. This one girl, she was a senior at the time. She'd been through Green Letters with us, I think the year before, and was going through it again. And one night, the light came on. And she said, I finally get it. She said, it's like I've got a boat that's more holes than boat, and I'm trying to patch it up. He said, that's what my life is like. It's like this boat ridden with holes and I'm trying to patch it up. When God has a new boat. <laughs> has a new life for us. In Christ. And then we, I think we ended kind of on this quote. One that came from uh, C.I. Schofield. He says, Of all the needy classes of people, the neediest of this earth are not those who are having heartbreaking, agonizing struggle for victory, but those who are having no struggle at all and no victory and who do not know it. And who are satisfied and jogging along in a pitiable absence of almost all the possessions that belong to them in Christ. He says the needy, most needy person isn't the one that's struggling and, and has a, you know, just broken over what's happening. He says the most needy person is the one that has no struggle but has no clue of what they're missing out on. You know, I've said it a number of times, but I'll say it again. You know, when we went to Ireland, we were blessed that God brought us, in, brought people into our lives that had been struggling and who had been failing and who knew it. And who said, I cannot live the Christian life. And to be able to say, you're at a good place you've just learned the hardest part the not I part that's the hardest part to learn he said now would you like to get to know Christ and they were Christians you know it wasn't like oh I already know him as my savior no they knew what we were talking about 
They said, yeah, I'd be willing to get to know Christ. And over the next years, they grew in their knowledge of him. It was up and down, all over the place. But they gained growth, they gained stability. And they're still walking with the Lord. But it started with them coming to this place of saying, I can't do it, Lord. I've tried. I've read the Bible. I've devoted time to prayer. I've got out there and witnessed. And yet I know in my heart where I'm at. And to say, Lord, I know I'm not living the Christian life. I'm not really experiencing what I know I'm meant to experience. I know I had to come to that point. I had to come to that point where, and it was back when I was still at FOA, where it just dawned on me, the price that Christ paid for my salvation had to be better than what I was experiencing. It was, Lord, show me. And he had to sh- he's had to show me what I am apart from him. And I've said it to you, I said it to my students over and over and over again. I am scared to death of what I am apart from Christ. I n- know in my heart what my flesh is capable of. Jonelle has said to me before, I think if you had never even got saved, you'd be a good person. No, that's not true. It's not. Because Joe has seen me a lot in my relationship to Christ. She hasn't seen what I'm capable in the flesh. And I think each of you know deep in your heart what your flesh is capable of if you don't if you don't know that you God is going to bring you to that place of seeing it because it's necessary to move forward now that's where we pick up it's with that quote I think you're on about what page 55 or something kind of towards the top where it says, J.C. Metcalf <coughs> gives this same fact an added witness. He says, many a young Christian who has not been warned of this necessary voyage of discovery upon which the Holy Spirit will certainly embark him, talking about Romans 7, has been plunged into almost incurable despair at the sight of his sinfulness, which is his by nature. And this is why it's important. You know, if we're involved in someone's coming to Christ, that in their early Christian life, we give them a little bit of an idea of what lies ahead. Because all too often, young believers aren't told that. It's, okay, you've accepted Christ as your Savior. Now, you need to just get out there and serve him. 
they aren't told that God now, because you are his child, is going to do everything necessary to conform you to the image of his dear son, Christ. He wants your life to begin to look like the life of Christ. And that in order to accomplish that, he's going to have to show you that you can't do it. And that he's got to produce it in you. And so, he's going to, in the days ahead, reveal things to you that you really don't want to see. That you really don't want to admit. But things to, that you need to see, you need to admit. So that you will come to see that just like you needed Christ to pay your sin debt to get you into heaven, you need Christ's life to live today. You needed a Savior. Now you need a life. His life. To become your life. You know this book. Again we started out. Looking at. Faith. And what faith is. And we're looking at time. And all the time that's involved. But then we looked at acceptance. Because it's so important. Early on in our Christian life. To see that we are accepted on the basis. Not of the life we're living. But on the basis of our relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ. Because if we don't understand that, when God starts showing us what this old Adamic life in us is like, we're going to feel like, how can God accept me? He does it on the basis of Christ. So we can face these things, as painful as they are, face them and embrace his answer. See, Metcalf goes on, he says, he has in the first place rejoiced, talking about the new believer, he has in the first place rejoiced greatly in the forgiveness of his sins and in his acceptance by God. But sooner or later he begins to realize that all is not well and that he has failed and fallen from the high standard which he set for himself to reach in the first flush of his conversion. He begins to know something of the experience which Paul so graphically describes. Romans 7.15 What I would, what I want to do, that I do not. But what I hate, that I do. And in consequence, he feels that the bottom has fallen out of his Christian life. And then perhaps the devil whispers to him that it's just no good his going on because he'll never make the grade. Little does he know how healthy his condition is. It's like I said to the Irish, you are at a really, really good place. Little does he know how healthy his condition is and that this shattering discovery is but the prelude to a magnificent series of further discoveries of things which God has expressly designed for his eternal enrichment.
says the discovery of what the self-life is like is just a prelude to the magnificent series of things that God's going to show us as he begins to show us what we are in Christ. All through life, God has to show us utter the, our utter sinfulness and need before he is able to lead us into the realms of grace in which we shall see his, I mean, shall glimpse his glory. He says all through life, again, early in our Christian life, there's a point where God has got to show us a lot about self in order to even begin to turn us to Christ. But even as we begin to understand our need of the life of Christ, God is always going to be showing us more and more about what we are apart from him. Because there's always, always, there's always areas that we haven't yet recognized the presence of self. There are areas that we haven't realized that we need Christ's life in. Those generally are the areas that we've been pretty successful in. You know, you've been real successful in your job. You don't see your need of Christ there. Well, God might have to bring some things into your job that opens your eyes to what you are like even there. To bring you to that place of, of helplessness and where you see your need of Christ. You know, for, for missionaries, it's so easy to go to the field and think, you have all this to offer God. And yet, He's got to let you fail. At times, somebody might say, well, you know, those heathen need to be saved. Why does he let this missionary struggle and fail? Because that missionary is important to God. Not for what he does, but for who he is meant to become. He says, self-revelation precedes divine revelation. That's a principle both in spiritual birth and spiritual growth. Okay, self-revelation, of course, preceded your spiritual birth. It was that you came to see yourself as lost. That brought you to a place of spiritual birth. Without seeing that, you would not have embraced Christ as your Savior. So self-revelation preceded your spiritual birth. But self-revelation also precedes spiritual growth. Any growth I've had in my Christian life has been preceded by God showing me things about myself and my need of Him. Need of His provisions.
goes on, he says, the believer who is going through struggle and failure is the Christian who is being carefully and lovingly handled by his Lord in a very personal way. Now, a lot of us wouldn't think that way. You know, if I'm struggling and I'm failing in my Christian life, I think, <coughs> where is God? God is at work. I often have thought of a statement I heard Larry Crabb make one time. He says, God's love relentlessly pursues our best, even when we would happily settle for less. We'd settle for comfortable. But God's love is going to pursue our best. Even if it's quite uncomfortable. It says he, that is the believer, is being taken through the experience, years and extent, of self-revelation and into death. The only basis upon which to know him and the power of his resurrection <coughs> and the fellowship of his suffering being made conformable unto his death. Before we're going to know the power of Christ's resurrection. The fellowship of knowing him. We've got to the, come to the end of self. Where we say, God, I cannot do it. I cannot live the Christian life. It's an impossible life, Lord. And then we remember what... The angel told Mary, you know, that all things are possible with God. That which is impossible for us is possible for him. He says, God works by paradox. Success comes via failure. Life springs out of death, etc. And then this, and this is a good statement to remember. The only element in the believer's life, the only element in your life and my life, that crumbles is that which has to go anyway. The new life can never be harmed or affected. What we have in Christ can never be affected by what's going on in this world. It's safe. Again, in Colossians, Paul talks about the fact that our life is hidden with Christ in God. And when we went through Colossians, I said there's at least three things you can draw from that. First of all, the fact that it is hidden is that it's not fully seen right now. That new life we have is not fully seen. Secondly, the fact that it's hidden with Christ in God, it's in a safe place. It cannot be harmed. And thirdly, because it's hidden in Christ, that's where it will be found. You know, I said, when I taught through it in, at the school one year, I, I went into class first and hit a $10 bill. And I told a, the students, I will give the $10 to the first person who can tell me precisely where it is. There were a lot of 
guesses, and then one uh, girl raised her hand, and she said, it is precisely where you hit it. And I said, that's the correct answer. And I gave her the $10. (laughs) You want to know precisely where something is? It's where it's hidden. And we look for life in all the wrong places. Rather than looking for it in Christ. And we keep wanting our life to be fixed. When God wants us to let go of our life and embrace his. For me to live is Christ. And to die is gain. If I die to what I am in and of myself. And live in him. That's where I gain. So the only element in the believer's life that crumbles is that which has to go anyway. The new life can never be harmed or affected. And he says this disintegration is something the believer cannot enter into or engineer on his own. You can't make it happen. God has to do it. Self will never cast out self. He has to be led into it by the mercy of the Holy Spirit. Into failure. Abject in total. He quotes from 2 Corinthians 4.11. For we which live are always delivered unto death for Jesus' sake. That the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our mortal flesh. God is always leading us to a place of death to the old so that we can experience the life we have in Christ. Now he says, so often the means utilized by the Spirit is an unsaved mate or even a saved one. You know, a couple weeks ago I I said, you know, one of the books we used with premarital counseling at one point, the author made a statement. He said, uh, often the the most difficult thing you learn in your first uh, year of marriage is not things about your spouse you didn't know, but things about yourself you didn't know. He said, on your wedding day, God gave you a gift, a full-length mirror called your spouse. And then, as I said, along the line, God throws in a few children who also reveal to you things about yourself that you had never seen. You know, yeah, he says, you know, sometimes it's an unsaved spouse, sometimes it's even a saved one. I was fortunate to have a saved spouse, but God still used her in my life to reveal things to me that I otherwise would not have seen. He says, or poor health, yes, and good health too. A thousand and one things are used by him, in fact, everything. Romans eight twenty-eight and 29, God is working all things together for good, what? Of conforming us to the image of Christ.
He says he's using a thousand and one things are used by him, in fact, everything, to bring out the worst in us. <laughs> See, we think God's going to bring out the best in us. No, he's going to bring out the worst in us, worst in the self-life. Ultimately enabling us to see that the Christian life has to be not I, but Christ. God is going to take us through situations that will show us the worst of what we are apart from him. Why? So we come to see, as that student said, that we're, our life, our self-life is a boat so full of holes that we're trying to patch up. When God has something new for us. Something in Christ. This next statement, I think, also is a significant one. People, circumstances, etc. are never the cause of failure. Self's reaction to them is the cause and the one problem to be dealt with. We want to say, you know, if it weren't for this circumstance, or if it weren't for that person, or it weren't for this, or we weren't for that, all would be well. He's saying, no. The problem isn't those things. You know, if it weren't for my boss, I could have a godly attitude. No. If it weren't for this, if it weren't for that, we want to blame everything. I know when I was a kid, there was a political cartoon strip known as Pogo. It was a little possum with his his friends and it was kind of a political cartoon, but there, one of the more well-known ones was he's, he's on this raft with his friends and he says, we have discovered the enemy and it is us. We have discovered the enemy and it is us. And that's a big part of the Christian life. Again, we want to see Satan as the enemy, and he is. He's God's adversary. But we want to ignore the flat fact that one of the biggest enemies you and I face day after day after day is us. Our self-life, our nature we inherited from Adam. So he says, self's reaction to them is the cause and the one problem to be dealt with. It's me. It's me, O Lord. He goes on, he says, many of us have probably known what it is to rejoice in the grace of God without apprehending very much the true character of the flesh. It has often been noticed that where there is the greatest exuberance of joy in young converts, there is often a levity which fails to take into account that the flesh is unchanged. 
says a lot of new believers, they, they talk in ways that indicate they really don't understand what the old Adamic nature is still like. In such cases, the grace of God is taken up in a self-confident way. Yeah, what we're going to do for God. There's very little self-distrust or sense of weakness and dependence. And the inevitable consequence is a fall or a succession of falls that gradually bring home to the, uh, to the consciences of believers their utter weakness and incapacity in the flesh. Now, Evan Hopkins, he says, shares some important light on our subject. How infinite are the forms in which self appears? The way yourself looks and the way myself looks might be very, very different. Some are occupied with good self. There's some believers, man, they've always been known for being so good and they're caught up in their goodness, their self-righteousness. They pride themselves in their excellencies, losing sight of the fact that pride is one of the sins God most despises. Others are just as much occupied with bad self. Oh, they're just overcome by just the seeing what they are within. They're forever groaning over their imperfections and struggling with the flesh as if they hoped in time to improve it. When shall we be convinced it is so utterly bad that it is beyond recovery? This Old life cannot be fixed. I've said it before. I don't care how long you're a Christian. Your fleshly nature will not really change. I've been a Christian 65 years. And my flesh is no better now than it was the day I was saved. It's still there. But hopefully I spend far less time letting it rule my life and far more time experiencing who I am and what I have in Christ. Your flesh will never change. In fact, and this is something Stanford points out elsewhere, the more you walk with the Lord, the less proficient you become at making your flesh look good. You know, when you're living in the flesh day in and day out, sometimes you get pretty good at putting on a veneer. That looks pretty good. But as you live your life in Christ... You tend to lose that capacity and the contrast become between the two gets, gets broader and broader. Jonelle and I have talked about the fact that the more we grow in the Lord, the more schizo we appear. We appear. <laughs> I 
Because the difference of who we are in Christ and who we are in the flesh goes further and further apart. We become less proficient with the flesh and we grow in our relationship with Christ. And so the distance between the two get broader and broader. And when you step over in the flesh, it really shows. It's nasty. He says, Our experience upward in the power of God is just proportionate to our experience downward in ceasing from self. He says, you know, the the amount we grow upward in Christ is proportional to the amount we go downward in relationship to self. Just real quick, it it helps a lot in realizing, you know, because you're shocked at, well, I'm growing the Lord, but look how bad I just Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But when we understand this, then we know man, we need to run towards the Lord. Yeah. Start that yeah. direction. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like uh, we said in an earlier class, it's not backsliding. It's not that our new life in Christ has gone backwards. It's that we've stepped over into a realm that hasn't changed. And we recognize that and we confess it to the Lord and we pick up and walk on with the Lord. Now let me just read this last paragraph. We're pretty much out of time but need to finish the chapter. Is it reckon yourself weak in reference to sin? No, it's lower than that. Is it reckon yourself to be dying? No, still lower. Reckon yourself to be dead indeed unto sin. Some believe they are very weak, but what does that imply? That they have some strength. But when a man is dead, he has no strength. He must act on the fact, uh, we must act on the fact that we are dead in reference to sin. We shall not then speak of difficulty as to resisting temptation in reference to ourselves. We shall take the lowest place and say it is impossible. But we shall know that what is impossible with self is possible with God. We shall take our place on the resurrection side of the cross. And in so doing, we leave behind the old self-life for the new Christ life. To live in him who is our life is to be in the very power of God. And then he closes with, with this statement. Someone has rightly said that there are many separated from the world Christians who are not separated from themselves Christians. And I think that's a pretty significant statement too. Because again, we want to blame Satan. We want to blame the world. We don't want to acknowledge that the enemy often is us. It's the self-life. Okay, we're out of time. Let me close in prayer. Lord, we do thank you now for the new life we have in Christ. And Lord, we thank you that you so want us to experience all that we are and have in Christ that you will lovingly orchestrate our failure in the area of self to bring us to that place of brokenness where we're willing to embrace Christ as our all in all. Lord, I know that you're at work in each life in this room. You know what each one needs. And Lord, we just pray that you would bring each and every one of them to the place
of experiencing uh, more and more fully what it means to be in him and for him to be in us. For it's in his precious name we pray. Amen.